Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out. Open them up to Acts, the seventh chapter. Acts chapter 7, we're going to read there, read right in the middle of the sermon that uh, Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. And some of those ideas and those thoughts will help us to get started in the Word of God this morning. Let's get those Bibles cranking and get ready to work together. As you're turning to Acts chapter 7, let me say how great it is to see everybody this morning and uh, how glad I am that you've chose to be here on this very beautiful first day of the week. The sun is shining, the skies are clear, the air is crisp, and all of those are just wonderful reminders of who it is that we have come together today to, to worship and who it is that we are right now ready to listen to and to have Him speak to us through His Word. Let's hear what God says. In Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is preaching, in Acts 7 and in verse 20, he's given really kind of a history of the Old Testament, a kind of a brief summary of the Old Testament. And he talks a little bit about Moses. In Acts chapter 7, this is verse number 20. In Acts 7 and in verse 20, there he says, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. But when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was, wrong, man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled, and he became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. You know, reading that little summary of the first part of Moses' life makes me wonder if Moses ever felt like he was having an identity crisis. You just stop and think about it. He was born as a Hebrew of the tribe of Levi. But at three months of age, he is adopted by an Egyptian princess. Thankfully, his Hebrew mother is able to nurse him for a period of time. But after the completion of that, he is then turned over to the hands of this Egyptian family where he is raised as an Egyptian, given an Egyptian name, learning the Egyptian language. He is all in as an Egyptian. But somewhere along the way, Moses then became aware of, of his true heritage, his Hebrew heritage. And what Stephen points out is that on one occasion, he tried to stand up for his Hebrew brothers and to help them when they were being mistreated. And yet those efforts were not entirely appreciated by his Hebrew brethren who viewed him as being very privileged and domineering, you son of an Egyptian. You can maybe almost imagine through all those years that Moses, Moses may have gotten confused at times. He may have even asked himself, Who am I? Who am I? In fact, when Moses encounters God for the very first time in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, the very first question that Moses asks God begins with those three words, Who am I? By birth, he was a Hebrew, but in his upbringing, he was an Egyptian. It's not hard to see how Moses from time to time might have struggled to find his identity through the early stages of his life. 
You know, the truth of the matter is the search for identity and meaning in life, that is a theme that has occupied the minds of human beings for, well, for centuries, maybe even since the very beginning of time. You think about Solomon. Solomon set about on a quest to find himself, to find his purpose, to find what he was all about in this life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Even in secular terms and in secular art and literature, in Shakespeare's play, King Lear, the king very famously cries out, Does anyone here know who I am? Who can tell me who I am? And that question, of course, continues to be repeated even to this present day. I think everyone, at least to some degree, is searching for identity. That is a clearly defined definition of self, who I am. Young people in particular, that's kind of a rite of passage that young people go through as they seek to find themselves, as they grow and as they change and as they develop, as they work through those years and early stages of their lives. They're trying to figure all of that out. And of course, we as adults and as parents, we... We try to give them the room to do that. We want to give them the space to figure all of that out. We make sure that we're not too you know, burdensome to them and overbearing. We need to let them make some mistakes from time to time because the last thing that we want to do is force them to just be carbon copy clones of us. But you know, while there is a sense in which all of us have some liberty to, to find our own voice and to hone our own talents and to carve out our own niche in the world, there is another sense, though, in which our identity, it is settled. And it is absolutely fixed. There is an area in which there should be no guesswork about our identity. And there should be no confusion and there should be no uncertainty about the question of who am I? And that is when it comes to what God says about our identity. Because make no mistake about it, God does have something to say about humanity's identity crisis. Particularly in a day and time where people are struggling, it seems, more and more with answering the who am I question. God's word across centuries of time, it speaks loudly and clearly and decisively and it settles that issue once and for all. You don't have to be confused about who you are. You don't have to try and figure it out all on your own. God has spoken in a way that you can understand. I can understand. Anybody can understand who they are. And the amazing thing about all of that is that we get that understanding on the very first page of God's book. Would you look with me in Genesis, the first chapter? In Genesis chapter 1, at the very outset, of God's written revelation, we are given definitive answers about who we are. If you're here this morning, if you're listening, and maybe you are kind of going through that stage of, I'm trying to figure out who I am, Genesis 1 is going to help you with that. You may have friends, you may know people who are struggling with this and trying to determine their identity. Maybe they've got some wrong ideas about identity. Genesis chapter 1 is where you're going to want to direct them to. What does God say there? What's the Bible say? In Genesis chapter 1, I'm reading in verse 26. In Genesis 1 verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
And so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. This morning, I am working just right out of those two verses. And I am working to get some clarity and some decisiveness about this question of who am I? You know, we are living in a time where our society certainly offers up all kinds of answers to that question. And in fact, our society would like to pressure you to conform to their ideas about identity. But I do believe that many of those ideas are misleading and wrong. And what they'll do is they'll just keep you lost and they will keep you confused. But if on the other hand you will be willing to listen and to hear what God has to say, and you can imagine this morning, young people, I am especially talking to you, then I believe you can find your identity. And in doing so, you can find the very purpose for your existence. Are you ready for that? There are three pieces here in Genesis chapter 1 for determining who I am. And that begins, number one, with the understanding that I am God's creation. Look again at our text, verse 26. How does it begin? Then God said, let us make man. Verse 27, that idea is repeated at least three times there. God created man. He created him. He created them. Four times in just those two little verses, Genesis 1 affirms that I am God's creation. Now, many times when the preacher gets up, and he's going to do some preaching out of Genesis, the first chapter. He's going to do that in order to and make an attempt to combat and refute the general theory of evolution that is so very popular in our world today. And while there definitely is a place for that kind of preaching, and I have done that kind of preaching from time to time, I must tell you this morning that I am much more interested in what this text does say and not so much what the text does not say. You know, in some ways, I envy the original Israelites who would have heard Moses read this text, this passage in their assemblies. And they didn't have to think about this passage in terms of, well, that, obviously that, that's going to be ground zero for discussing Darwinian evolution with our friends. We need to know some things about that so that we can combat that. They didn't think about these verses in that way. In fact, I'm not even so convinced that this text was written to counter all the polytheism that existed in that world at that time. The Israelites, of course, they had seen all kinds of gods in Egypt and they would see all different kinds of gods when they came into the land of Canaan. And there were all these gods who were at odds with the one true God, Jehovah. I'm not even so sure that these verses are designed to necessarily refute and fight against all of that. I believe that this text originally was designed to say quite simply, you are made. That's it. You are made. Israelites heard that and they understood that God created me. God created everything that I can see in the natural realm in all of this universe and that includes God creating me. And what that says then is that says that I am not an accident. Think about it. Accidents happen, but nobody makes them. No one says, you know what, I think I'll hop into my car today and I'll drive 95 miles an hour into a brick wall and I'll make an accident today. No, accidents occur, but they are not made. Making and creating, on the other hand, 
That speaks to purpose. That speaks to intentionality. This text in Genesis chapter 1, it is just filled with purpose and intent. And maybe that explains why it is that we as human beings, why we like to make things. Why we like to create things with our mind and even with our hands. Some of you have done woodworking. And there's just something special about that, isn't there? There's just something enjoyable about that. About shaping the wood and whittling it down and sanding it and cutting it and forming it and the smell of the sawdust when it's all done. That's good, isn't it? Some of you are involved in knitting and quilting and crocheting. Maybe you like to paint or draw or to design things. We just feel good about making something. And I wonder if that good feeling that we get sometimes, I wonder if that was placed within us by our original Creator. Because it makes us feel good to make things. It gives us some purpose. Somebody says, what are you doing there? Well, I'm making a table. Or what is that that you're putting together? Hey, I'm knitting a sweater. It just sounds a whole lot better than what are you doing? Oh, I'm binging a series on Netflix for the 400th time. There's just something more meaningful about creating and making that implies purpose. It says, this is needed. And so I'm going to make it. And I'm going to make it to serve this purpose and to do something and to fill that purpose. And I am saying to you this morning that that is precisely what we are seeing in Genesis the first chapter. God made me and that means that God has a purpose for me. And that means then that I need to go about the task of discovering what that purpose is. What exactly was I created to do? You know, surely God has not gone to all of the trouble of creating me and you and every person who has ever lived and, well, He just did that for no good reason at all. He just kind of got bored one day, so He just made people. No, I'm here. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm made for a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, that is the second piece of this puzzle in Genesis chapter 1 as we form our identity. As we ask the question, who am I? Well, number one, I am God's creation. And number two, Genesis 1 says, I also bear the image of God. Look at verse 26 again. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in His own image, in the image of God. You know, we're kind of zoomed in right here on verses 26 and 27. But let's kind of zoom out a little bit. Let's get a little bit wider view of Genesis chapter 1 as a whole. Where are we at this point? Where are we in the creation account? Well, by the time we get to 26 and 27, we're actually pretty far along in the creation account, aren't we? You start back in verse 1, And you just kind of just track out and map out and just walk right along and work your way forward. And what you find is you find that God God made some stuff on day one. And then God made some more stuff on day two. God made a bunch of stuff on day three. Made a lot more stuff on day four. Made a whole bunch of things on day five. Made some really great things on day six. And then before He rested on the seventh day and called an end to day six... We are told here in verses 26 and 27 that before God finished, the very last thing that God created before resting on the seventh day is God created human beings. And you know what that says to us? That speaks to us of priority 
and preeminence. What we're looking at in verses 26 and 27, this is the pinnacle of God's creative work. What we're seeing in verses 26 and 27 is the climax of God's creation. Everything that came before it is designed to serve the thing that is created in verses 26 and 27. And what that ought to tell us is that yes, while we can can marvel at the stars in the night sky, and yes, we can be awed by the power of, of the ocean, none of that, none of that will even begin to top even a single human being. Humans are the crown of God's creation. And just the sequence and the order of the events in the text ought to tell us that. But you know what? Even if we didn't pay attention to the entire text, and even if we kind of missed kind of the order and the sequence of things, there's still no way that we would miss this point just by reading verses 26 and 27. Because 26 and 27 says emphatically, we are made differently than the rest of creation. We are made in God's image. That statement is not said of anything else in all of creation. Not the planets... Not the animals, not the trees, not the bugs, not the water, not the light. Nothing. Only humans are given that distinction. Now, we need to be very clear when we talk about bearing God's image. This does not mean, you should know, this does not mean that we physically resemble God. You can't go home this afternoon and look in the mirror and say, Oh, there I am, and that's what God looks like. No, that's, that's not what that's talking about here. The term image here speaks of something that crowns us as being the pinnacle of God's creation and something that separates us from all of the rest of the the animal kingdom and the bird kingdom and the insect kingdom and the plant kingdom. It sets us apart as distinct and different. What this passage teaches us is that we are more than just physical creatures. There is more to you than just your physical body. What this passage is alluding to is the fact that you are a spiritual being. You have a spirit. You have a soul. You have a spiritual component to you that is fashioned after the likeness of your Creator. There's a part of you that will live eternally somewhere, but it will go on eternally. And that spiritual side of man, it gives you spiritual desire and spiritual ambition and spiritual capacity. We are spiritual beings. You know, no insect looks at a beautiful Kentucky sunrise and says, Oh my, look at that. There must be a God. No plant studies the process of photosynthesis or osmosis and says, Wow! The complex design in our universe must demand that there is a designer. No rock says, I should be holy and glorify my Creator. No lion looks at its prey and says, you know it would be morally wrong of me to take another's life. But we do. We do all of those things and so much more. Why? Because we have the image of God stamped deep upon our souls. You want to talk about identity? Genesis chapter 1 is shaping that identity. Genesis 1 says you are a spiritual being like God. This is part of who you are. God made you in His image. And this is exactly why it is important for us to understand spiritual concepts. 
This is why it is important for us to understand some things about, about sin, for example. Think about what sin does. Sin blurs the image of God. Sin distorts the image of God in our minds and in our lives. Whenever we choose to give in to temptation and to serve ourselves, what happens is, is we are defacing this perfect and holy image that God has given us. We are marring, we are vandalizing the beautiful gift that the Creator has placed within us. Would you step out of Genesis for just a second? I wanted to stay in Genesis the whole lesson, but I can't. Look in Colossians 3. In Colossians chapter 3, there is similar language used here in Colossians chapter 3 that's similar to the creation account. In Colossians 3, Paul lists off a whole bunch of sinful behaviors and sinful attitudes. And what he says is he says, you need to put those things off. You need to get them out of your life. You need to, you need to stop doing that. You need to turn away from that. What I want us to notice is the reason why we need to turn away from those things. In Colossians 3, look in verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Drop down to verse 8. You must also put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Verse 10 now is what I want you to see. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, look at it, after the image of its Creator. What Paul teaches, if you read all of Colossians, is that Paul teaches that in Christ Jesus we can put sin away. And as a result, we can be renewed, we can be restored. For what purpose, verse 10? So that we can be true image bearers after the likeness of our Creator. Our Creator is without sin. And our job is to put that away from us so that the image of God can be reflected accurately. And I'm saying to you this morning that that, that is our purpose. That is your purpose. That is every per person's purpose on the face of this earth. I was created to bear the image of God in my life. I was given spiritual desire and spiritual abilities and spiritual capacities so that I could then direct my heart and my mind and my strength and my being toward God. I was given life and breath and all the blessings that come with life so that I would then glorify God here upon this earth. That, that is my purpose. And i got to tell you that as soon as you understand that, in a lot of ways, that's kind of, it's kind of a revolutionary way of thinking about life and the purpose of life. But once you come to that understanding, then the truth is all kinds of things become very, very clear. You come to realize, for example that you have significance. The fact that you bear the image of God says that you are significant. So many people wander through life thinking that who I am and what I do, it just doesn't really matter. It's of no consequence whatsoever. But remember, we are the only part of creation that can choose to love God and trust God and serve God so that we can then properly reflect the greatness of His image. That says that what I do, it does matter. Furthermore, when we understand that we are image bearers, that gives us as well accountability. One day, I understand that I'm going to stand before the Lord. And in that day, I'm going to have to give an answer for how I bore that image. 
God placed His image upon me. How then did I reflect that in my life? Did I use those spiritual capacities that God gave me? Did I use that stuff for good? Or did I tarnish His image? Did I just muck it all up and make it fuzzy and blurry to the rest of the world and I wasted it away? Maybe best of all, when I recognize that I am an image bearer, then that gives me focus and direction in life. It helps to guide me through all of the daily decisions. In fact, all the big decisions that everybody has to make in life. Questions like, where should I go to school? Or should I even go to college? What should I do for a living? What kind of vocation and job, career path should I choose? Who should I marry? Or should I even get married at all? Where should I live? Where should I go and where life takes me? Where should I allow life to take me? How should I raise my children? Should I even have children? All of those and a zillion other choices that we encounter daily. When I understand that I am an image bearer, then all of those decisions, they get squeezed through the filter of what will glorify God. Does this glorify God? Is this going to help me to glorify God? Or is it going to hinder me from glorifying God? Going to that particular college... Am I going to be able to glorify God there? Or is that going to keep me from glorifying God if I go there? That job that I'm thinking about taking, am I going to be able to continue to glorify God as I should or is that job going to pose a hindrance to that? This person that I'm thinking about marrying, are they going to help me to glorify God and I help them to glorify God? Or is that person going to stand in the way at every turn? You see, when I recognize that my purpose, my identity is wrapped up in being an image bearer of God, then suddenly things start to clear up, don't they? Suddenly things in life start to make some sense. That I'm not just aimlessly wandering around, plodding through life, wondering, who am I? Why am I here? No. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 says that I am God's creation and that I am put here to bear God's image to His glory and to His honor. Which will bring me to this third and final piece that Genesis chapter 1 reveals to us about our identity. And that is, thirdly, that I have a distinct gender and role. Would you look at verse 26 again? There God says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the animals that are upon the land and over all the earth. What's that speak to? That speaks to role. And then verse 27... He created them male and female. That speaks to two distinctive genders. You know, I said something earlier about Charles Darwin and how it's hard not to think about Darwin's theory of evolution whenever we read these verses in Genesis chapter 1. But you know, maybe the thing that bothers me the most about evolutionary theory and how that's taken a hold in our society today is that it just absolutely destroys the very foundations for human identity. Think about it. Evolution, general theory of evolution says that that we are not made. We are not made by a designer, a creator. And furthermore, what that means is, is that means that I do not bear the image of that creator in my life. And when you take away those two foundational ideas, then that just opens up the door for every kind of ungodliness and darkness and error of every kind. Our society in many ways today 
has cut itself loose from God. It's cut itself loose from those foundational principles, which means there is little to no regard for God or for His Word. And as a result, as a result, confusion abounds. Here we are. You'd think we'd be pretty advanced today. We're in the year 2021. We're well into the 21st century now. But here in 2021, even basic gender distinctions are being blurred and being lost. People cannot even answer the question of who am I even at the most foundational and biological level. But you know what? Genesis 1 settles that once and for all. Genesis 1 is able to cut through any of the fog or the uncertainty that our society has made about that. Why? Because this is God's Word. That's what we're looking at here. We are looking at the Word of the Creator. And this is God's distinction. I think He knew what He was doing then. And having a defined gender and role, I'm saying to you this morning that that is part of who you are. And that is part of how you were made. Men are men. They are made that way, and they are different from women. Women are women. And they are made that way, and guess what? They are different from men. And if you think that by citing some dusty old religious book here in Genesis chapter 1, that all, well, that just, who cares about that? Who cares about you know, that dusty old book? That doesn't have any relevance to our modern discussions about this. I should tell you that men and women are different. And that's not just in how they look and how they appear. But that also is true in how their bodies function and work. That is true in how they think and how they are wired. That is true in what they can do and in their capabilities. And there is a mountain of facts and data and evidence and findings, not just from the Bible, but from science and from biology and from medicine, and it cannot be denied. Men and women are distinct. And all those differences, they are coded and weaved into the DNA of every cell in your body. And I'm here to say this morning that no amount of hormones... And no amount of gender reassignment surgeries and no amount of changing the pronouns with which you identify with, none of that is ever going to change what Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 clearly articulates. But when men and women decide to ignore God's distinctions as it pertains to gender and role and sexuality, then what they ultimately are doing then is they are fighting against God pushing back against the very one who made them. And in fact, they are fighting against themselves. They are fighting against their God-given identity. And such can bring only shame and uncertainty and confusion and darkness. But the good news is this morning is that when we accept that God has given each human being a distinct gender, a distinct role, then you know what? My identity it starts to come into to much clearer focus. My identity becomes more and more defined and refined. For example, the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship that is introduced in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2. That relationship, I can enter into it and I can know exactly who I am. I can know who I'm supposed to be. I can know that I'm either supposed to be a husband, as a man, or I can be a wife, as a woman. And furthermore, I can know what my job is 
in that role? Is my job to lead as a husband and as the man? Or is my job to submit and follow as the wife, as the woman? And that means as well that if the Lord should maybe even bless that marriage with children, then I can know as well specifically what my role is as a father or as a mother and what my duties and obligations are as a father or as a mother. And furthermore, not only does that provide clarity for us within the home, but it also provides clarity for us within the kingdom of God. When men and women accept their God-given identity and gender, then that means there'll be no confusion about who does what within the church. We're seeing that more and more in the religious world, aren't we? All kinds of blurring of distinctions as it pertains to roles within the church. When we understand, though, our gender, our role, our identity that's been given to us by God, then we will simply strive to fulfill the very unique role that God created each of us to play. Can I say to our young people this morning, young people, God made you to be you. And He made you to fulfill that role that you were specifically created for. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't try to run away from that identity. And certainly do not fall prey to any of the lies and the nonsense that is being spewed about self-identification. I can choose, I can just pick what my gender and what my role is going to be in this life. I'm going to be something different than what God created me to be. Absolutely not. Humble yourself. Not just young people. All of us need to humble ourselves before the God who created us and then bear His image honorably by accepting and fulfilling the role that each of us is uniquely capable of fulfilling. Now, let me wrap all of these ideas up by saying something that will probably be very painfully obvious to everybody here. But did you notice where we are in the Bible and in the Bible story? We are not in some apocalyptic book of the Bible like Daniel or Revelation and it's filled with all kinds of visions and signs and symbols that are sometimes confusing to decipher and to figure out and well we're reading in there and well, I'm just really not sure exactly what that says. That's not where we are. And furthermore, we're not in the middle of all those prophets that we're reading right now in our Bible reading plan where it just seems like lots of messages of repent or be judged, repent or be judged and it's easy to get lost in all of that. And we're certainly not in the backside of Leviticus full of all those archaic rules and all that talk about blood and things that we just maybe don't even fully understand and that we are no longer bound by today. That's, that's not where we are. Where are we? We are on page one of the Bible. We are at the place where everything starts. God begins all of that right here. And He does that so that everybody can know just right up front they can know right up front exactly who they are. You can know exactly where you fit, and when you understand who you are and where you fit, then you can then understand everything else that God reveals in the pages of Scripture. Page 1 tells us not only the beginnings of our universe, not only the beginnings of our world, but page 1 tells us about the beginning of our identity. Genesis chapter 1 answers decisively for every man, woman, and child, that age-old question of who am I? 
And while our society seems to revel and almost wallow in its ignorance and continues to push itself deeper and deeper and further and further away from God, you and I, you and I don't have to suffer that same identity crisis. You and I can be a certain people living in uncertain times. I can know who I am and I praise God that I can know that and I can know why I'm here. What about you this morning? Have you come to recognize who you are and what your purpose is? Have you come to recognize that your job, job one in life, is to faithfully bear the image of God? That is what it's all about. When it's all said and done, that's the only thing that's going to matter. Did I live my life to glorify my Creator? If you have not yet taken those steps to begin to demonstrate to God how you seek to glorify Him in your life, then this morning you have such an opportunity. We're going to sing in just a moment, number 283, there's a great day coming. And we want to live in anticipation of that great day and we want to be ready for that day. If you have never adopted the wonderful identity of being a Christian, a child of God, then today you can be given that wonderful description, that wonderful title. By surrendering yourself to the obedience of the gospel, confessing your faith in Jesus as Lord, repenting and turning from sin, and being baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You do that, God's going to add you to His family. You can now be known as a child of God. What a wonderful identity to have. If you are a child of God, but brother or sister, it may be that you have not been a very faithful image bearer. This is the kind of lesson that ought to give us a little bit of pause right there. I I lingered a long time on point number two because that's the part that we really need to think about. Am I faithfully reflecting the glory of my Creator in my daily life? If you've failed in that in some way, if you've sinned in some way, and you need the help and the assistance of your brothers and sisters here, we stand ready to help you. Let's do something about that and let's do it right now. Come to the front while we stand and while we sing.